Good evening to you all. You may know that this is the last night of the retreat. Do you know that? (laughs) So given uh, uh, the retreat of this length as it happens, um, we have an uneven night in terms of the teachers doing Dharma talks. So we decided that in this last last evening what we would actually do is do a joint activity for your benefit and edification, perhaps. (laughs) Now, you may have seen uh, pictures of Tibetan monks in, in Tibet who have studied and learned their, the various teachings and um, uh, the different views of different schools of Tibetan Buddhism that do a lot of analytical exploration of various things that are uh, sometimes quite esoteric. So they, they learn all these different views and positions and compare and contrast them. And then as part of their training, they periodically uh, go out into a courtyard and they debate each other. So you see these guys in, in red robes standing close to each other and they'll be pacing up and down, you know, making their point, making their point, and they'd be slapping their hands and, and that's the way it is. <laughs> and, you know, it's like this uh, kind of... Uh, uh, quasi-combat where they argue one side and then argue another side and this is their way of sealing in their learning. So uh, Anushka and I are going to be... <laughs> <laughs> so you can place your bets on who's going to take who <laughs> because while I am bigger than she is, she is younger. <laughs> So we thought that tonight we would actually take up the theme of establishing presence. Establishing presence. That may seem familiar to you. Does that that phrase sound familiar to you? Establishing presence. Perhaps it has something to do with this very retreat that you've been on. And we would uh, each talk about that for maybe 10 to 15 minutes and then perhaps have an interactive and... Uh, depending on how that goes, we may even open it up to the peanut gallery and uh, and take questions. So consider what it's like to talk to someone who is paying no attention to you or on the other side of that, consider what it's like when you have um, someone talking to you in a way that is completely disconnected to you. And I know we have a number of physicians here so I won't, won't want to cast aspersions, but, you know, we, we all know what it's like to be in a situation where we're trying to tell somebody something, and you can tell just by you know, kind of like looking at their, their face and their body language that there's nobody there to receive the communication. Or conversely, maybe you've had the experience of feeling that somebody is is kind of talking at you, that what what they're saying to you uh, isn't really communication, it's just sort of some kind of an internalized um, volcano that's that's bubbling in your vicinity. And it although it is perhaps seemingly to do with you, it's not really Connecting. It's not really there. And of course, we all have that, that experience of being partially there when we're talking to others or feeling that others are partially or not at all there when they're talking to us. 
So this is a, a no-blame situation because this is the way it is sometimes, but it is also true that when one is present in their communication with others and the other is present in their communication with you, the results tend to be more satisfying because there's actually that feeling of a possible meeting meeting of the minds because both spaces are open and, and receptive to the interchange. There's a kind of possibility for feedback, right? When both people are present, when both minds are, are open, when there's a kind of pliancy and on-the-spot flexibility that responds to the message and the content and the emotional field, there's potential for interchange. There's the potential even for something completely new and useful and beneficial to arise out of the conversation. Have you ever had that kind of experience? I hope so. (laughs) So when one considers uh, similar principles in relationship to one's own experience, you can start to see the benefit of being able to be present to your own experience. Because the voice that is most often kind of like talking away or talking at is an internal voice that is disconnected from one's own immediate experience. So I would imagine that for most of you, one of the uh, significant learnings of being on this, this retreat has been how often it's challenging to even find the body, let alone the breath, because you're kind of captured by and pulled into this cloud of uh, closed, self-referential thinking that it has its own energy source and just churns around and around on itself. Hermetically sealed reality, right? Hermetically sealed. So in a certain way, you could say that this whole process of meditation is a way to ask you to use your capacity to focus attention and awareness and drop down below that level of mind that is just in a certain kind of way recycling what it already knows in its own existing views and opinions about things. To drop below that level of mind and to tune into something in real time, real time, that provides real time sensory feedback instead of speculation. So when we direct you, for instance, to attend to the sensations of the feet walking, you know, initially that can seem to be a very silly and simplistic kind of activity for such sophisticated beings as we are. But there's a certain kind of way that learning to turn to the senses initially in real time actually serves to get us out of our exclusive reliance on recycled, conditioned content so that something new can happen. In the absence of mindfulness, in the absence of mindful awareness, basically what happens is that we are 
completely at the mercy of whatever our existing conditioning is. Because there's nothing there that can question it. In another word, a way to put it is there is no metacognition, M-E-T-A, cognition. And it's also no M-E-T-T-A cognition most of the time either. But there's nothing outside of it that can say, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is like the swirl. This is just like a bunch of circling thoughts that I've already thought a million times. Maybe that's not really true. Or maybe I don't really need to, to act on that particular uh, painful impulse or perspective. Maybe I can just sit back and actually just know that that impulse is there and use the energy and the observational capacity of mind to actually investigate it instead of be compelled by it. So in the absence of mindful awareness, there's compulsivity. So whatever the condition grooves are of reactivity, that's the way the water of consciousness is going to flow. It's just going to use the existing channels. So you can see the lack of, of freedom in that. And you know, if you consider, for instance, so, some of the, the lower animal kingdom, you can understand perhaps what's being said there, right? Because there's limited capacity uh, to do anything other than what they're wired to do, right? But we humans, the more ability we have to actually observe what's going on in real time, the more it is possible for us to take a wise relationship to even our instinctual and otherwise compulsive drives, our lower drives that want to fight or flee or you know, uh, reproduce or, you know, grab it all for ourselves. Right? So it allows the, the potential for those impulses to be seen and known when they're present without needing to go along for the full ride. So the potential for reason to be employed, the potential for uh, to make choices uh, in the direction of what's skillful and wise, what is conducive to our well-being and the well-being of others, is actually there. And those choices can still be upstream choices, not, not easy to make but the door opens to be able to make those kinds of choices. Whereas in the absence of mindfulness, there is no choice. You're just going with whatever is attached to the particular button that's being pushed. And I, I'm sure you know, you've noticed some of this sitting on retreat, right? Like some particular thought might come up in your mind and then from that, you know, like the whole mushroom cloud of associations, and then there's the emotions, and then there's the, the whole ride. But here we, here we can strain you in this environment where we encourage you to just uh, sit with it, sit with it, and learn to be present to it, instead of, for instance you know, getting up and going to your computer and, you know, sending uh, that text message to somebody that you just thought about that really screwed you over and (laughs) you've been, you know, 
you've been thinking about it for three days, right? So the, the protection of sila then is there, the protection of morality is there, um, the protection of the five precepts is there. If mindfulness is there, there's a possibility to do something other than what we normally would always do. So there's the capacity for self-restraint, for not doing some things that are unwise that we would normally do. And there's the the possibility for self-development, the possibility to choose to do things we otherwise would not do, to push ourselves a little further or to make a different kind of choice even though it's not necessarily organic. So this is is the, the pivot point for human beings, this capacity to, to develop a particular kind of wise attention. And then through that, uh, the development of that kind of wise attention and its strengthening, many uh, freedoms can open up in what was uh, previously closed or or compulsive. So it's really uh, a a very key thing that you're doing here in doing this seemingly simplistic thing of trying to find the sensations of your breath and just attend to them. You know, if you were going to say, why do you practice um, mindfulness meditation or why do you practice uh, vipassana? you could say that one of the reasons that you do that is because you're practicing tuning into things as they are, things as they present themselves immediately in real time. You're you're practicing getting in touch with reality. So this can be helpful Painful sometimes, but helpful. Painful sometimes in a a way that's onward leading, that actually will result in growth and development versus the kind of painful that um, is part of being uh, enmeshed or admired in certain unskillful, uh, unwise habits of uh, body, speech, and mind. So I didn't totally know this was going to be Dharma combat, so (laughs) I might have prepared in a more collaborative way. Than, uh, <laughs> but um, I mean, actually, uh, we, were, we were talking about karaoke earlier and joking that uh, we kind of are like we're sort of singing the same songs and uh, in our own way, right? And uh, one of the biggest compliments I feel like I got at some point was someone was saying like. Uh, they were trying to mean it as an insult to me about the teaching that I was doing. They were like, you're not saying anything new. You know, you're just saying the same stuff as like I've heard before from all these Buddhist teachings. I was like, that, I think that's good, actually. <laughs> that's, <laughs> you know. You're not a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, this, this establishing presence, you know, that's the title of the retreat. And we think about these titles some time, a long time before the retreats, and then we had to send in a description, and they put it up and all that. And then, you know, it comes closer to the time of the retreat, and sometimes we have to go back and be like, what was that called again? We know it's a retreat. But, uh, and I was very excited about this um, title. I feel like it's meaningful to me, this establishing presence. And even before coming to um, Buddhist practice myself, uh, from a, a young age, I was interested in um, yeah, this different dimension of, of life, I guess, and in meeting people from uh, different traditions, different cultural traditions, different religious traditions, 
who seemed like like wise people in some way, who weren't even necessarily called a priest or shaman or officially something or other, but had some uh, similar quality about them. And among the among the descriptions that I might give about that is having a strong sense of presence, like really being here in some way. And then, you know, maybe it manifests a little bit more as uh, like love or gentleness or fierceness or um, a kind of, uh, yeah, sharp, clear seeing. And uh, But the sense of presence is something that uh, is there as a, a thread through awake beings, I would say. And it's something that all of us have and that all of us can learn to cultivate. And that's really one of the main things we've been doing here is cultivating this sense of presence, not just in order to be like some special, cool kind of person, but in order to be able to access this kind of um, wisdom, to uncover this kind of wisdom that's available to us, that's there. So some of the uh, establishments of this presence uh, and both the results of and the sense of establishment, we talked about in the very beginning of the retreat, um, which was this thing that we did about the training precepts or establishments of integrity. And I feel like that is an important aspect of establishing a sense of um, presence, of groundedness, is attending to the way in which we speak and act and attending to the impact that has on uh, ourselves and others. In the Buddhist teaching, there's two uh, different sort of characters or qualities of the mind and heart that are called the guardian spirits of the world. And broadly speaking, there's uh, a distinction made between kind of wholesome, skillful states of mind and heart, like compassion, generosity, love, uh, and then unskillful, unwholesome ones. So this is like you know, revenge or uh, hatred. And these two are ones that are considered wholesome, but you may or may not initially think that they're wholesome. So one of them is called hiri in uh, Pali, and it's a sense of um, personal integrity, you could say. Uh, so integrity, so meaning like, like, oh, I couldn't do this thing that that's like a transgression against someone else because of some sense of integrity. So it's kind of like some sense of um, wholeness or uh, yeah, some connection to the, in, this, in this presence is not, would not allow me to do that. Right? Regardless of whether anyone else caught you doing it. Like something inherently in you. And then the other one is uh, otapa, and this is like uh, more like an ethical conscience. So then it's like, I couldn't really do this thing because uh, I understand that there would be consequences of that. Of that. So the uh, concern about the consequences, which is actually a wise understanding of cause and effect, uh, prevents me from doing this thing. And that could even include that um, other people would judge me if they knew this. This is different than like guilt or uh, a different kind of judgment. This is more like um, recognizing, like, oh, there's people that I respect. And uh, there's this phrase often used about, you know, I think it's even in the chant about not doing something that the wise would later reprove. You know? So you could even think of that as like you on your best days, <laughs> you on your wisest days, you know. And there's a, a quote from uh, Dr. Seuss. It says, uh, uh, let me live this day uh, as if today was the day on which I will be remembered. So like, yeah, what would it be like if I was trying to live today as if today is going to be the day that I'll be remembered? What if today is the last day of my life? Or what if someone's making a documentary about me today and uh, filming me and what I'm up to? So this uh, establishment of, uh, of presence and connection to sense of wholeness, integrity, and connection to others. And last night also I referred to uh, some of the ways in which um, the mind kind of spins out into our stories. And um, Winnie was also 
uh, talking about this uh, well just now about the kind of hermetically sealed world of self-absorption that we get caught in and some some of the sometimes it's like easier to kind of pop that bubble than others and sometimes I can even sense in people like when I'm trying to talk to them about it uh, the resistance to letting go of that is really strong and it's almost like um, you know if you get like a cat into a corner sometimes it's like (laughs) so like that that delusion is like so tightly wound anything that's starting to uh, yeah hint that maybe that's there's some little holes in that or pulling at little threads there's some part of the mind that goes like doesn't want to let go of it. So there's a, a particular teaching of the Buddha where he's, he describes um, kind of generically some of this um, sort of thicket of views that we get stuck in. And I think it's so brilliant. Like this is really 2,600 years ago he's saying this stuff. But if you listen to it, it will sound eerily familiar, I promise you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So he's talking about, well, what is, a, what is a, a wise area for attention? And he says, you know, a run-of-the-mill person, a worldling, uh, like unawakened individual, uh, doesn't discern what ideas are fit for attention or unfit. So basically like, doesn't understand how to uh, spend attention, how to spend one's energy in this way. And in this way kind of squanders presence in this field of popping thoughts. And this run-of-the-mill person, uh, sadly, spends a lot of time in areas of of attention and thought and ideas that lead to an increase in uh, absorption or obsession with the sensual world, with becoming, and with ignorance. So it increases all those things. So here's some of the list of the, the thicket that we get caught in. So was I in the past, some version of this, was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what was I in the past? Then there's another, another category. Shall I be in the future? Uh, shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what will I be in the future? And then just to complete the whole uh, puzzle, there's also perplexed thoughts about the immediate present even. So am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Uh, where has this being come from? Where is it bound for? So that's about like 15 different questions. And you could kind of like take what seems like a very uh, personal and compelling obsession that you've been uh, chewing on over and over again in your mind and probably not getting too much more information from. Uh, and it probably fits into one of these baskets. Right? So that includes like who are you going to marry or date, right? where you're going to live, what kind of job you're going to take, all this stuff. And it's not to say that it's not useful to think about those things, but it's more the kind of obsessive, self-absorbed, uh, yeah, hermetically sealed way in which our energy gets cycled through. Right? That's really unhelpful and is uh, not leading towards wisdom, freedom. Uh, it's, it's based in delusion, really. So th- I've talked about this uh, before in a number of the different instructions that um, I feel like one of the revolutionary benefits of this practice is discovering a different way of knowing. You're learning a different way of knowing. And it's so hard to convince the intellectual mind of this, that there's something else <laughs> that's a different way of knowing that could be valid besides uh, thinking about stuff and thinking about oneself. So I remember when I first came to uh, practice, I was in uh, college, and uh, which means I had basically had you know, like 18 years of continuous classroom education of thinking about stuff. Uh, And I was good at it, too. (laughs) I was rewarded for it and uh, smart and did well in school. So then 
uh, it was very difficult for the mind to like get out of that relationship to even this kind of practice. And yet, there was a part of me that sensed there was something different that was available. And these people sitting up here, like they knew something that I wanted to understand. And they seemed to be saying that they were they got that way not from sitting around and thinking about it. <laughs> they seemed to be saying that they came to these understandings from doing this like slow walking thing, <laughs> you know, sitting and breathing thing. So even if I didn't totally understand the path from that to there, <laughs> there was some way in which it inspired me to uh, continue to practice. And I encourage you also, you know, the retreat is a, a beautiful set of circumstances to develop this uh, different way of knowing and uh, a way of living from uh, a different place than our ideas of ourselves and our sort of the head, if you will to continue to develop this practice of knowing uh, with presence um, what's happening internally and externally. And it's so powerful to develop this even in daily life, you know, to be someone who can listen from the heart, you know, listen from the belly. Uh, what would that be like to be in relationship with another person in which you were able to take in uh, all the different ways in which they were presenting? like energetically, emotionally, physically, and not just the words they're saying. You know, get a sense of what's going on like that. What would it be like to move around in the world with that sense, to physically be embodied in a different way? What would it be like to be connected to nature, where you're fully open in the senses, and able to connect with this experience as it's changing and know the filters that are there. Or sometimes even let go of some of the filters. So something that we have been cultivating and that we are cultivating here and that you can continue to cultivate uh, as you go back into your regular life. And a lot of the kind of in-between times in retreat are times in which uh, you are cultivating aspects of this that you can take back to your uh, life at home. I will talk more about this uh, tomorrow uh, morning during the closing. Uh, but even between now and the seeming end of the retreat, um, you'll know, be interested in like what is it like to um, brush your teeth with a sense of presence. Like, what's it like to stand up, to put on your shoes, to put on your jacket? You have very simple things, and to be as fully, wholeheartedly present as possible. And what it would be like to eat breakfast in the morning with full presence, full connection. What it would be like to even put yourself to bed uh, with presence. And one uh, aspect of this cultivation also is the, um, the metta practice too. So a presence that can be imbued with uh, love, with kindness, with a friendliness. Uh, this presence can have a, a sense of curiosity, a kind curiosity about life, about whatever's happening, about whoever's in front of you, right? including uh, just yourself. So we often yearn for that kind of presence, that quality of presence. And uh, you know, when he was uh, helping us to recall, like when we encounter someone like that, how it feels to be on the receiving end and what it's like when someone's really not paying attention at all. And the secret is that even though we might be looking for that in other people, we can ourselves uncover that. Like we can actually be that one who we're looking for, that quality of attention that quality of uh, kindness, of interest. So um, I don't think we've told the story of the Metta Sutta, the origins of the Metta Sutta, maybe the the Buddha gave this uh, teaching to the um, monastics um, when they were basically spooked 
Did you tell the story? A little bit. And, um, yeah, in some ways that story is about them establishing a different kind of presence. Uh, And that establishment of this kind of presence with, uh, like one of my favorite translations of metta is the force of unstoppable friendliness. So the establishment of this unstoppable friendliness, which is a, it's like a superpower, you know, it's a strength, uh, is like a a quality that uh, can transform the world from one's experience. So in your exploration of this also, it can be quite fun. Like in the metta also, there's ways in which you can practice metta directionally, like, you know, establishing this, this direction this side, this side, up, down. Yeah. So you can become like a lighthouse of metta, in some way, you know, beacon in different directions. And you can also play with this in your regular life. And there's so many times in which we're in circumstance, like on a train or bus or you know, in some n- nondescript place that's not a meditation hall. Uh, but regardless, you can be cultivating this state wish well for everyone in that direction in the airport or those directions or up and down <laughs> like gorilla metta <laughs> so yeah I encourage you to uh, continue to explore this and to uh, commit to this different way of knowing and it will serve you uh, well and uh, we can all develop uh, more in this way and we all already have the seeds of that uh, regardless of what our judgment is of that as well. So, I'll stop there. I can remember... uh... When I was a teenager, my mother used to watch this soap opera every day called One Life to Live. (laughs) I think it went on for like 40 years or something. (laughs) Maybe it's still going, I don't know. Is it still going? No, it's finally gone. One Life to Live had a lifespan, I guess, but... You know, it's a... A shame to miss it, the life that you have. An interesting thing to me, and when I meet with people, sometimes when we're having the practice meetings, sometimes people will come in and they'll say, I'll say, what are you experiencing? And they'll say, well, you know, this is happening, but this is happening, but this is happening. What's happening? They'll say to me. <laughs> kind, of, kind of looking to have somebody, you know, tell them what the real experience is and what it means. And what I usually say is, well, this state or thought arose and was known. And then this state arose and was known. And then this state arose and then was known. That's what's happening. (laughs) But but you can see the, the mind kind of struggling to consolidate it all into some sort of fixity that has a fixed answer, you know, like, am I like this or am I like that? And you're like, why am I feeling this? And shouldn't it be like that and shouldn't I be able to this and I shouldn't be able to that and then I would say that's confusion (laughs) that's a real moment experience of not being sure right so in real time having uh, the support of a teacher in saying in uh, helping to provide that bigger META as well as the METTA framework that helps the the heart mind be able to 
hold a bigger perspective on what's going on instead of trying to force experience into some sort of final conclusion about what's happening. Because there isn't a final conclusion about what's happening, there's only process. Right? There's a, there's pro, you're, you're a process. You're not a fixity. So when you relate to what's happening in terms of fixities or trying to get fixity, you're going to really suffer <laughs> because it can't happen. But to empower the mind to be able to be present within the flow of changing experience in real time, knowing in real time what's happening, knowing what's present as it arises and is known and then passes away, that's freedom, right? A larger field of freedom and allowing in which immediate experience can arise and manifest and have its own life and then pass away. So that you don't need to to fight with any of it, you don't need to identify in a final way with anything. These are just experiences uh, coming and going. No need to have a war to keep anything from happening or to keep anything. No need to have a war to try to keep anything out or make it be different. Because in real time you really, you really can't do that. It's not possible. So just the, the release of resistance to this flow of change is the end of suffering. It's the end of suffering. It's the end of the friction between you and what is. So, and in that, in, in, a, in a mind that, that allows in that way, that's open in that kind of way, that isn't fighting with the content of what it's knowing, there is a kind of whole system intelligence that can emerge that really is able to um, use the information from all the different senses, from seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, as well as things like uh, thinking and analysis and memory and all the rest of it. It's all there, it all, all it spontaneously uh, incorporates into a much deeper, uh, much wiser way of being present and making decisions because you're no, you're open to the information that's there. We have a, a friend uh, called uh, Bonnie Durand and she gave a, a talk here in this hall during the long retreat in the, in the fall and she said, mindfulness, she's an academic so she kind of talked talks like this. She has these geeky ways of putting things sometimes. So she says, uh, mindfulness uh, collects data points, which allows for the spontaneous uh, arising of um, clear principles. Something like that. Meaning, just by taking, learning to take awareness back down to this very simple way of immediate knowing, the whole system is actually kind of gaining <coughs> information about how things work, how things come together. You know, and Anushka was talking about that in her talk the other evening when she gave you the image of, you know, a, a, you know, a baby in a high chair who's, you know, starting to, you know, drop things off the tray just to see what happens and, you know, starting to figure out what happens when you do this and you do that, right? 
this whole process of starting to learn how things really work as a, a totality requires information and requires sustained seeing of a non-distorted nature. So this whole process is, you could say, designed to squeeze out the delusion in your system to get you below the level of concept and ideas about how things are and ask you to learn to attend in a a more sustained way with what's actually happening in real time. There's the idea of walking and then there's the actual feeling of your feet touching. Right? There's the uh, idea of what you should be experiencing when you focus on the breath. And then there's the actual thing that can be perceived or immediately known. And you've all probably had the experience of kind of like double guessing what you're experiencing. Like, is this right? Should I be experiencing this? Should I, should it be some other way? Should it be like this? You know, maybe I've heard it should be like that. You know, um, is there something wrong? And then try, in other words, trying to almost trying to conform your experience to some idea coming from someplace. I mean, they get pulled out of strange crevasses, but trying to conform your ideas, your experience to some idea, some inchoate, often, uh, idea about what should be happening and then getting very upset because, for instance, instead of there being ease in the body, there's the this particular set of sensations that you think are are a problem. But over time we learn to kind of drop the double vision and just rest more and more with what is actually there, what's actually present. What's actually present as it is. And the, the double guessing the resistance and the clinging starts to fade away and then with that clarity and allowing arises. And the double vision eventually goes away. Or if there is double vision, the mind knows that that's what's happening. Oh, this is the idea that it should be different than how it actually is. I see this is the arising of a desire for it to be different. Or this is the arising of a worry because of how it is. So this is a very deceptively simple practice that you're doing here that can lead to very deep and very profound effects allowing you to to fully inhabit your experience in a wise kind of way. So you don't lose anything except your suffering. You know, you still have imagination, you still have memory, you still have um, all the full range of potential experiences at the mind door and all the other sense doors. There's just less delusion uh, woven into it. There's less sleepwalking. There's less compulsivity. Um, There's more of the ability to choose a a direction that is onward leading and and moves towards further uh, development um, and wisdom. So, that seems to be at least what I can say about presence tonight. (laughs) We didn't get too rough with each other. (laughs) Maybe a a final thing along these lines is just that, um, you know, we've had uh, 
several days now of practicing and among the ideas of, uh, you know, am I this, am I that, that might have floated through is like, oh, did I get anywhere? Am I a good meditator, a bad meditator? Did I get it as much as the last retreat, less, you know? uh, And there's a way which it's helpful to trust that uh, you just showed up and do your best and then there is a, like some building that happens, you know, there's some uh, powerful um, establishment of presence that happens, like almost in spite of yourself. (laughs) And uh, given that, you know, this is actually a very um, powerful time of the retreat. So even though it's the last night um, and a part of you might be like, oh, almost done, almost gone, right? Uh, And start to feel like I can... uh, stop or something like that Uh, just in a very gentle way I encourage you to continue to make good use of the time here you know it's really very fortunate conditions to have the space in which there's a lot of other people also practicing meditation in which there's meditation hall and uh, yeah we never know when's the next time that we might have an opportunity to do this again too so I'll have plenty of time to engage in the other ways of knowing uh, within 24 hours from now. But uh, yeah, from now until the end, just encourage you to stay with the uh, the practice. And it can be a time when very interesting things can unfold for you too. So, on that note... final walking period and then come back in for the metta chat thank you thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate